God's word this morning, and I'm excited, excited, excited to share with you God's word. If you could open your Bible to two places, two places this morning. If you could open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. And can you also open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Before I share in this morning's message, I want to talk to you about something that I've been learning that we're all going to learn about in September. We're going to go through a series of inner healing. But I wanted to share with you a little bit about what I've been learning this week as I've studied from God's word and as I've read different things. This week I had the privilege of studying what's called the slumbering spirit. And this is a really, um, this is a really tough thing, uh, this spiritual thing that people struggle with. And, and what it is, is their spirit in their life lies dormant. And so no matter what happens to them, they don't feel alive. And a lot of this comes through issues related to their parents and to their parents caressing them. Do you know, we live in a society that says, let the kid cry it out, you know? Uh, but but, but you, you see, the problem is, um, we had a very affectionate generation prior to World War II. And what ended up happening is, how many of your parents are, are from that World War II era? Yeah, can you raise your hands? Out of those folks whose parents are from the World War II era, how many of your parents were actually affectionate with you? Okay. There's a reason. There's a reason for that. And there's a reason why some of our World War II veterans' children struggle. The missing of a father figure for years. This baby boomer generation grew up without father figures. Their fathers were away fighting in a war. And so there wasn't a lot of affectionate touch that happened. Kids weren't grabbed. They weren't hugged. They weren't kissed. They weren't told that they were loved. If that has happened to you in your childhood, you are a prime candidate to have this slumbering spirit. One of the ways that you can tell yourself if you have or struggle with this issue is that you can come into a charged environment, a worship atmosphere, and you'll see everyone else around you experiencing something in the place, in that room, the power of the Holy Spirit. And for some reason, you can never connect. You can never connect. That's part of that. The other thing that it manifests, the other way that it manifests itself, it's relationally. You cannot connect with people in a deep and intimate level. Because how many of you know this? We have a spirit. Other people have spirits. Do you know that our spirits connect on uh, every time? You ever wonder why you're somewhere, fars off in a room, and you won't even hear the door open, but you'll know that somebody's there, somebody just walked in? That's because you just sense their spirit walk into a room. The other thing is, the other way of connecting is, uh, uh, you know, a mom 
feeding her baby. That baby distinctly knows who their mother is. There is a connection between their spirits that happen. When an individual suffers from lack of affection in their life, they can't connect with other people's spirits. And so they even cannot connect with their husbands and their wives at all. They have sex and they go through the motions of sex. And there's no, sex is meant to be a deep intertwining of a married couple's spirit with each other. This does not happen for an individual who struggles with a slumbering spirit. And so we're going to learn a little bit about all of these things in September. And we're going to go throughout trauma. What does trauma mean? What does inner healing mean? What is an inner vow? How can we have a bitter root expectancy? And after the service, what we're going to do is we're going to have a group, a life group that actually meets to be able to go through those who would like to study this further, to be able to ask those deep questions that we all struggle with. But I just wanted to give you a clue as to what's coming in September, because it is deep what's coming in September, and it is going to cause an incredible amount of growth in your life, and I'm, I'm absolutely excited for that. But are you guys ready? This morning's message is called Eternity eternity revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 and it says this and then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be be with them as their God. And I love this verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can I tell you something? One of the biggest things, and I'm so excited we're talking about this, because one of the biggest things to, to inner healing is is this part. The greatest inner healing that will ever happen in our lives is the day that Jesus comes again and that heaven meets earth and that we're able to live in eternity with Jesus because he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death won't exist anymore. Neither shall be mourning. You know, we mourn a lot more than just people's death. There are things in our life that have died and we don't realize it and we mourn it relationships that have died in our lives and we mourn those relationships and it says nor crying i like that no crying in heaven nor pain anymore pain is the beginning point of inner healing there is a pain a trauma something that has happened in our life something that has occurred no more pain forever healed physically emotionally spiritually for the former things have passed away for the former things have passed away when you begin with the end in mind it gives you the strength and the power to make it through the life you're living right now my hope is that we'll begin to lean forward trusting that God is faithful and powerful enough to make good on his promises 
This is a coming day. That revelation passage will happen. It is a day when victory is assured and all of things will come to a conclusion. We will stand in the very presence of God and be forever healed. And that is the end goal of man. But how do we live in the meantime? How do we not despair? How do we not give up when things are bad? How do we hope for a future? If you could turn with me again to Mark 12, verse 18. Mark 12, verse 18. And it says this, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. This is the belief of the Sadducees. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring of his brother, the child of his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, there were no children, no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no children. And the third, the same thing. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. Let me, let me break this passage down for a moment if I could. The Sadducees, they go up to Jesus and they come up with a hypothetical question for Jesus. In Old Testament law said, if a man were to die without any kids, the next single brother in line would marry his wife and on and on. In light of this, their question was about which brother would get her in the resurrection. It's interesting to recognize this. The Sadducees were the ones asking this question. Let me just explain who they were. They were a civic, political, religious group of elite leaders who had a couple of beliefs that played into their question. They were known for two things. The Sadducees were known for two main beliefs. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe that there was an eternity to come. They did not believe in heaven. And the other thing that they were known for is they only believed in the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. That's the only thing that they considered. So two main beliefs that the Sadducees had. We don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe in heaven. And we only believe in the first five books of the Bible. They believed that this world was all that there was and that there was no afterlife. So as I was reading, and I don't know if this happens to you, but as I was reading, I began to judge these people for asking these questions to Jesus. How many of you judge people in the Bible? You're like, how can you be so dumb? Why would you do something like that? And then I started to wonder, 
Sometimes we look at ourselves as the hero in scriptures. What if we can be equally shown in light of the villains in scripture too? I ask myself, how often do I act like a Sadducee? How often do I I look at the Bible and think about what parts I want to believe and what parts I don't? How often do I wonder if there really is something to come and wonder if this world is all there is? I mean, let's be honest, right? How often do you wonder if I die, if I get into a car accident, if, if this world goes before my eyes? What happens if I'm struck with cancer? What happens if I'm terminal and I'm in a hospital bed? What happens then? Is this really all that there is? Do I really live more like a Sadducee than I do like a follower of Jesus? See, we often believe like Christians that there is heaven, but we live like Sadducees as if this is all that there is. Let's, I'm going to say that one more time. I want that to sink into your mind. We believe like Christians that there is a heaven, but we live like Sadducees as if this is all that there is. Jesus said to them, Mark 12, 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I love that Jesus is so confrontational. He is not what we have been told. He is not Sunday school and rainbow Jesus. I mean, he's like that sometimes. I mean, but he is incredibly confrontational. He is just upfront with them and just confronts them. He says, you're wrong. And explains why. You don't understand the Bible. You don't trust and you don't even know the power of God. And he then proved the resurrection to them from what they accepted as their religious beliefs. Mark 12, 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Many of the Sadducees had memorized the first five books of the Bible. For Jesus asked them if they read it was literally a slap in the face. You know, I've been in counseling sessions before. And I've seen how people behave sometimes. And uh, can I tell you something? There is nothing that irritates a Christian more in counseling than you bringing up a scripture that they are violating. Don't you know what the Bible says here? This is not how we act. It's not how we behave. And there's nothing that irritates their flesh more than being shown that they are wrong through scripture. It's literally like a slap in the face. Hey, don't you, haven't you read this before? And Jesus explained to them, he was talking to Moses at that point in the book of Exodus. Abraham had been dead for 500 years, but still he spoke in the present tense. God is the God of these dead because there is a resurrection that will happen. So he wasn't the God of them before and no longer is. He is still their God. He is the God of living people. And Jesus confronts the error of the Sadducees head on. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he question their belief in the scriptures? Why would he question their understanding of the power of God? Jesus was saying to them this. If you don't believe there is a future, that God has spoken of a future, and that he is powerful enough to bring that future to life, then you don't believe in the afterlife. 
And so your real issue here is not necessarily believing, not believing in the afterlife. Your real issue is trusting in the power of God. How often do our surfacey issues appear like they're the real problem? And the truth is, is that there is a greater depth to the things that we deal with. You know, 85% of Americans believe that there is an afterlife. But we get a little hazy about what it's going to look like. You see, we think heaven is this nice, clean, neat, well-lit place with lots of clouds. There are probably little fat baby angels with harps uh, running around. There's pearly golden gates and everybody is wearing a standard issue white robe when they enter in through the pearly gates. And so our idea of heaven is not really compelling It's hard to long for something we don't really know. See, we like our cities. We like the activities that we have in our cities. But we want what we know. And we want what we already love. And we're not really open as a people to much more than that. You see, we believe like Christians, but we live like Sadducees. And part of the reason is we don't trust God's word or his power to accomplish his word. Isn't that true? That God says, I have plans for you. I have plans to prosper you. I have plans to bless you. But so often we revert back to thinking, God really hates me. He's not in my favor. He's against me. Everything that's happening in my life is because God is working against me. How often do we, do we believe like that? We say we believe the Bible, but the truth is we believe something else. And here's where the error comes. If we think this world is all there is, we find ourselves in one of two errors, okay? And I want you to internalize this. Number one, we find ourselves in the error of hedonism. We just want to get as much pleasure and as much comfort as we possibly can. You ever heard of the term carpe diem? Seize the day. This is all we get, so let's have fun. We'll find ourselves using the model. If it feels good, let's do it. If it makes me happy, just do it. Do you know that this is where we get our term, follow your heart. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Sometimes our emotions can't really be trusted because our emotions don't always play with facts. Sometimes they operate in a version of what's true, but not in the fullness of what's true. There are no consequences So let me get all that I want and do all that I want in this life. That's one error. Number two, a second error is hopelessness. We think that if this is all there is, there's no meaning, there's no value, there's no point to life. These are the philosophers and the poets who are weighed down by the hopelessness of all there is. There's no assurance of the future. And we find ourselves battling with this. If this world really is all that there is, we either get pleasure or we drown in hopelessness. We either get pleasure or we drown in hopelessness. And we find ourselves battling with this. But Jesus answers it in a a really unique way. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being 
raised. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are wrong. Jesus answered their question of no future in two very specific ways. He answered them theologically and he answered them relationally. And so I want to dive in. And he makes this profound statement. For when they rise from the dead. For when they rise from the dead. Jesus is assuming that the resurrection is a reality for, for the people. There will be a resurrection for humanity. And he states that very strongly. Jesus does not argue about not if there will be. He says when there will be. This is a teaching of the New Testament. All will rise. Everyone who dies on this earth will be resurrected. Some will rise to eternal life and some will rise to judgment. For those who do not believe in Jesus and haven't come up and received the grace of Jesus, they will have a day of despair. But for those who have embraced the grace of Jesus, for those who have embraced the banner of the cross... The perspective of death really does change. Because death no longer becomes a day of despair. It no longer becomes the day that it's all over. But it's a day to rejoice in. This idea of the resurrection is discussed over and over again in the entire New Testament. Look at what John chapter eleven twenty five 25 says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all are made alive. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is a day coming when our bodies will be raised from the dead. And Jesus was challenging these Sadducees by stating that the claim that there will be a day when sin is no longer our identity, when death will no longer be our destiny, when we will all live victorious in Christ. And Jesus was theologically pointing us to that day. The day of the resurrection of the dead. The Bible says this, The dead in Christ will rise first and the church will be caught up to meet with them in the clouds. This is what you have maybe heard about before as the second coming of Jesus or the rapture of the church. We believe that Jesus is coming again for his church and we believe it because the Bible teaches it. Jesus also addresses their issue relationally. Is there marriage in heaven? See, our initial thought of us not being able to be married in heaven doesn't sound like heaven to us. But we need to understand a deeper reality of what is going on in eternity. Jesus was saying, yes, there will be marriage in heaven, but it won't be the way you know it now. Ephesians chapter 5 
discusses the purpose of marriage as being a sign of a, a greater reality. Our marriages are to make us holy and to point to the loving and kind relationship that humanity should have with Jesus. It's a picture of a greater reality of a love that God has with us. That's the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to point us to something greater. That's why we don't need marriage as it exists on earth in heaven. Because we'll finally have the real thing. What does that mean for human relationships? Will we know one another? Will we recognize one another? Will we even care if others are there because we'll be so in love with God? I think we'll know each other. I think we'll have great relationships with one another. You see, if you ever want to look at what heaven will be like, just look at what God intended for the world before the fall of mankind. So if you ever want to see what heaven is like, just go back to the book of Genesis. Before the fall in Genesis chapter 3, God created Adam. And then God said this, and this is a perfect world. This is before sin comes into this world. So this is what God intends for, for heaven. Then God said this, man is it's not good for man to be alone. Let me create a helper who is suitable for him. And he created Eve before sin ever entered into the scene. Human relationships were a part of God's design. Will we be in relationship? Will we grow in relationship in heaven? Yes, we will. We'll be in relationship. There will be a depth to relationship in what we call a new and glorified body. So if you ever want to see what, would, what will my body look like when I am in heaven, there are two examples that we can look at in the scriptures of what a glorified body looks like. Number one, Jesus. Jesus shows up and he appears once he resurrects in a glorified body. Jesus does some pretty cool things, as a matter of fact, because he kind of hangs out for a few days after his resurrection with his disciples and with his apostles. He actually eats. Do you know that Jesus meets Peter to restore Peter into right relationship with Jesus. And when Peter shows up to the shores of Galilee, Jesus is cooking for Peter. And they eat together. And they fellowship with each other. There is this glorified body that Jesus has. The other person that you can see that has an awesome glorified body is the prophet Elijah. The Bible says in the Old Testament that the prophet Elijah never saw death. He was taken up in a chariot, a whirlwind, a fire, and he never saw death. And the uh, next time that we see Elijah is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Moses. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are all together as Jesus is transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so these are two people who have glorified bodies. They've seen heaven. They've come down to this earth. Here's the other thing. I've talked to you about a big misconception that we have. Is heaven all there is? No. No, it's not. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that this entire world at the end of days 
the entirety of the world will be consumed and purified with fire. And God, the new Jerusalem, will come down from heaven and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And God will rule here with his people on earth. We will be here at some point. Those who have believed in Jesus, those who have died in Jesus, will come back. We will live again on this earth in a glorified and purified world. I've heard this said time and time again uh, from individuals who have said that they have had experiences or visions with going to heaven. I've heard them say that there are colors there that, that cannot even be described. And, and there's actually a philosophical term. Um, back when I was studying uh, um, in school, as far as like Greek philosophy, I forget exactly who was the philosopher that said it, but that everything on this earth is just a shadow of a more perfect thing in another. And, and, and to an extent, that's true. This world is just a shadow of the glory of heaven, of the reality and of the truth of heaven, and of the depth of what heaven will be like. So I want you to think of every moment that you enjoy that brings pleasure not only to you, but to God. And just think of that magnified a hundredfold. Think about a world where these emotions of crying, of sadness, of mourning, of devastation don't exist. You want to talk about living for happiness? Living to be happy? Living to be happy is living in light of eternity. Because the only true place where we will ever experience the fullness of happiness is in the kingdom of heaven. It's in eternity with God. You see, if we live with the picture of now in mind, we'll find ourselves not hoping for the future. Living with eternity in mind will be the antidote to both hedonism and hopelessness. If we mess around with the, uh, some of the pleasures we can find on this earth, they will pale in comparison to what is eternally ours in heaven. Amen. Here is a good analogy that I want you to remember. Sometimes we settle for the sandbox when the entire beach is available. These things are only pictures of things that are to come. So hedonism is no longer the way we live because there's a hope for a better joy and a pleasure that will last forever, that will be true, that will be right, and that will be good. If we trust there is a better future to come, we won't be weighed down by the despair thinking there's no hope, there's no point. There is a point, church. And we're going there. And we're being guided by Jesus there. So we long, we wait, we hope, and we cry out that heaven would come. But we can't ignore what happens on this earth. Life happens. But we know that life isn't all that there is. There is a hope for a future. So hopelessness is not the way we exist. It's not the way we should carry ourselves as Christians. We live anxiously, but we live anxiously for the future to come when God redeems all things. Randy Alcorn, an author, says this, you should seek happiness where you can actually find it in the person of Jesus and the place of heaven. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest pastors and preachers 
of all time also talked about this idea. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said. To come to God is to come home from exile. To come to land out of the raging storm. To come to rest after long labor. To come to the goal of our desire. And the summit, the height of our wishes. See, there is a day coming where you will walk into the presence of God. The one who has loved you before the foundations of the world will welcome you in. That is our reality. That is our hope. That is our longing. The scripture says, the one who is mighty to save will sing over you with loud sounds of rejoicing. I can't wait to meet Jesus face to face. I've preached about him. I've, I have suffered <laughs> for his name. I want to see him face to face. I want him to welcome me into heaven. And you know what? This helps you live so differently than what you live now. Because if you live right now, what our culture says is you need to live for man. I live my life for my husband. I live my life for my wife. Uh, I live my life for my job. I live my life for everyone's approval. But you see, when we live in light of eternity, it changes it. Because we live for one statement alone. And this is the only statement that I ever live for in my life. Is it tough to live for this statement? It is. Do you take some arrows for living for this statement? Yes, you do. It is difficult. But there's one statement that each and every one of us this morning should be living for. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the one statement we should all be living for. That Jesus would welcome us into heaven and would say, well done, good and faithful servant. My hope for us is that we don't waste our lives with just trivial pleasures, assuming that this is all that there is. Nor do we waste our lives with hopelessness, but rather that we trust in Jesus' word that there is a day coming. We trust that God's power will accomplish God's word. And so what we do is we lean forward and we long for the day when we will be with the God of the living, where we will enter into eternal rest and And where God will take us home. Until then, let us live in light of this reality. See, we're so on the move as a people that we're scared of what rest really means. And so every time we see rest and eternity together, we kind of freak out. Whoa, I don't want to be sleeping for a hundred million years and... (laughs) And never experience what you're talking about. But can I tell you, there are people who walk around, function, and do work. Just like, how many of you have heard it said that work is a curse as a result of the fall? You've heard that before? I just want to correct you. Before the fall of man ever occurred, mankind was already working. It just became difficult and an agony to work. So God's intention is for you to work. What does that mean? If there was work before the fall of man, if there was work before the fall of man, 
and God's original intention for us is that we would be rested, does that mean, dare I say, that we could be in a spirit of rest even while we're functioning and we're working? That's the truth. See, rest is not that you would lay down in a bed and close your eyes and fall into a slumber. Rest is a state of mind. It is a function of body. It is you not being anguished, not being in anxiety over all the things that are happening in your life. What if I told you that we could seek that out here on this earth? What if I told you that seeking it out here on this earth is a direct result of us looking towards eternity, of us looking towards heaven, and of us living for heaven? I want to pray for you because I believe that September will bring great fruitfulness in this area because you will learn how to, how to have your spirit ministered to. You will learn how to live your life in this eternal state of rest so that there is a communion between you and God, an unbreakable communion between two, you and God, and so that there is a state of rest that the enemy cannot penetrate and move towards. And I am absolutely, I'm excited for what this means. I believe it means freedom, freedom for you. In all that you do, no matter where you go, you will be at peace and at rest. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. I want to pray. This is a a powerful time of ministry this morning. I want to pray that you would live your life for eternity. Live your life for eternity. There's something better than mud cakes and playing with mud cakes on this earth. There's something better than playing in the sandbox when there is an entire beach to be able to, to, to joy in. There's something so much deeper than the things that we currently experience right now. There is a depth and Jesus wants to take you into that depth. And he wants that depth to become a reality here on this earth right now.